I never failed. And the truth is, I haven't failed. What is true is, I have often produced a result that I didn't want or didn't intend. That happens a lot. I just don't like the term. Failure is an emotional term for me that I have a hard time disassociating with me personally. I often invite people to look at languaging that they use and suggest changing our languaging that works better for me. And failure as a term doesn't work for me. I just produce a result that didn't happen. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selleck. And I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, seven hatters. In this episode, we dive deep into hat numbers one and four, the soul and the entrepreneur, as we launch into space with Donald James and discover why manners will take you where your brains and money won't. Donald is a 35-year NASA veteran where he honed his skills as an executive leader, passionate communicator, and of course, a manners expert. Donald is the author of an incredible book titled Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't, sharing the lessons and timeless wisdom he learned from his mom growing up. His story is inspirational and meaningful with many gold nuggets abound. It's not every day we get to learn from a NASA expert So without further ado, let's welcome Donald to the Seven Hats. Donald, thank you for making time to come on the Seven Hats podcast. You're welcome, Yuval. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Um, You know, I recently interviewed Dr. Troy Hall, who wrote a book by the name of Fanny Rules, which details the lessons learned from his mother when he was 12 years old by her bedside. Uh, She was fighting cancer. You also wrote a book as a tribute to your mother, Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't. So we'll discuss the lessons learned in a few minutes, but I wanted to have you speak of your upbringing and um, and relationship with your mom so that the seven hatters can learn a little bit more about you. Uh, Thank you. Um, I was reared in Sacramento, California with my brother. My mother was a single mom. Uh, I came from the South. Uh, migrated west with my father uh, before they divorced. Uh, so I was reared, as my brother was, by a single black woman. I'm African-American or black, as I prefer. And we grew up, I'm 64 now, so we grew up, came of age in the 60s and 70s, which was a bit of a, a trying time. You know, my mother was a little fearful of my brother and me being out in the streets and doing things that could get us in trouble. She was very well aware of of what can happen to young black kids, if uh, particularly ones that have big mouths like I did and <laughs> didn't take too kindly to people telling me what to do kinds of things. So, I, so I'm a Californian and I, I went to college in, in Southern California, Los Angeles. And then my parents made it clear that if I wanted graduate school, I had to pay for it myself. So I spent a year hustling money and then got lucky and got a fellowship, uh, then went to school back in Washington, D.C. And uh, that's when my NASA career started. Although, interestingly enough, I didn't start off wanting to work at NASA. It kind of showed up and uh, that journey is one I chronicle in the book and happy to talk about. So your dream was not to be to become an astronaut when you were a young kid? No, my dream was to be a pilot and to work on the supersonic transport because when I was a young kid, this idea of building planes faster than the speed of sound was becoming present and I was just enthralled by that and I thought I wanted to be a pilot. So did my brother. We both wanted to be. We lived near an airport, Sacramento. Here's what I learned, and I talk about this in in the book that I wrote, is that I just went through the process of what I thought I needed to do to learn to be a pilot at the time. Mostly it was through the military. What does that mean? Well, at the university I attended, 
um, you can go into the ROTC or Reserve Officer Training Corps. I didn't know much about it, but I was told that was an option. And what I found out is that I didn't particularly like the military culture. I also found out and didn't realize until much later that I'm very much a process person versus an end goal person. And I mean by that is the various steps that I have to go through to get someplace, I have to continually be inspired and enjoy it. And the details and the data thing matters. My brother, on the other hand, who also ended up in the military and the Marines, he didn't care about what you have to do. He was an end goal person. I want to be a pilot, and this is what I have to do to be a pilot. So if I have to eat snakes, so be it. Well, <laughs> I don't do snakes. <laughs> so I went. I had a catharsis. I, I just went through this real depressing time in college, and I remember talking to my dad about it and just feeling like, you know, my whole life I said, oh, I want to be a pilot, I want to be a pilot, and then it kind of came crumbling down. So it taught me an interesting lesson. In fact, it's the title of chapter two of my book called Know Thyself, where how important it is to really find out about yourself before you say, oh, I'm just going to go do this. You know, I want to be an entrepreneur. That sounds really cool. And then you find out that it's a lot of work and you're sleeping on the streets and you're begging for money. And there's a lot of things that, you know, may you may find that process enjoyable and fulfilling and exciting or you may not. This helpful to know before you get in too far and find out that um, you went down the wrong path. So I ended up changing gears totally and decided I was going to save the world from the scourges of poverty and destitution and because I was privileged to live in third world countries growing up because of the work my dad did. And um, then I discovered that I wasn't really trained to do anything. I was getting a master's degree in economics. I didn't want to be an economist. So I needed a job. (laughs) And that really started me on the path to eventually led to NASA. And I my dad had to talk me into accepting the job. I think he was ready for me to get out of the house because I was living with him here. I'm in graduate school and I'm living with him and his family. <laughs> and, uh, so I, he said, you know, just do it for two or three years and get some experience. And then you can leverage that experience to what you really want to do. And I said, all right. So I interviewed and I did well. And I even told the interview, I said, oh, you know, I'm really looking to go save the world. I'm not sure about this NASA stuff, but thank you very much. You know, I'll I'll get back to you, you know, which is often heard as code for he's not calling back. Right. But they kept calling me. And eventually my dad said, son, this is a actual job. You might want to think about that. So I got the hint and I said yes. And I was still only committed to working at NASA for about three to four years. And then my life completely changed again. Yeah. And that was January 1986 when we lost Space Shuttle Challenger. I was invited to be a part of what was going to come after Challenger. And that changed me totally. And I saw how much the nation came together, particularly around the teacher space. And I had the distinct honor of working with Crystal McAuliffe, the teacher who was killed on Challenger, I worked with her backup astronaut. All astronauts have a backup, an understudy, if you will, in case somebody gets sick. And Barbara Morgan was that person. And I was assigned to work with Barbara and go around and talk to teachers and students, sort of a, you know, kind of a therapy for the country, right? And that experience just opened my eyes and said, wow, if I can work for an agency, that can have this kind of impact on people on this scale that I'm in. And I was in, and I stayed in until I ran NASA education to the day I retired. So 35 years. 35 years. Wow. That's right. What were your roles in NASA? I did mostly um, public affairs and government relations. And I was, I'm the relationship guy, right? So that's, that's what I learned how to do. And then one day, like I think around late 1990s, my boss said, we need to have a succession plan for our guy who was running education at the NASA center where I work. This is in California. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. And, um, you know, I didn't, I mean, I taught school for a little while, but I wasn't a certified teacher and I I knew enough to be dangerous. My mother was a school teacher. So I guess I knew a little bit, 
Uh, so I got into that, and it was really about managing programs to support students and and teachers and and, and states that wanted to improve their their quote STEM education activities. And I stayed in that until I rose up to the highest levels possible. And so, so I ran programs. I I managed budgets. I managed people. I directed uh, ideas. I, I had to defend our budgets to Congress. I had to answer to a lot of Congress people. I had to go to the White House sometimes and and do things that you're asked to do there. Um, there was a time period where. I got to work um, uh, in in a program, our Orion spacecraft program at Johnson Space Center as part of my senior development training. And that was a lot of fun. Um, I have the honor of being the first person to write the first project plan for the Orion spacecraft. And at the time, I was completely terrified when they asked me to do that. I said, I haven't studied engineering since we use slide rules. I mean, I, I don't know if I can do this, you know, I, and he said, oh, you don't have to worry about it. There'll be people that'll help you. You know, all you got to do is put a bunch of sub plans together and make it look nice and, you know, make sure that, you know, we're coherent. And so um, so I did that and I had an awful lot of help. I can't claim that I was a sole author, but I can claim that I was responsible for that. And uh, I'm so I'm pretty proud of that. And so when Orion flies but one day, eventually, I hope to be there to watch it go off. I'm sure the plan looks nothing like what I originally had, but uh, that's that's what I did. And so I learned how to manage projects and I learned how to, um, you know, try to be a good leader. And that's 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 where I found my happy place. So the educator, was that more of the fulfilling role for you? Yes, it was, because it allowed me to help inspire students I'll tell you. I'll tell you the story when someone says, "What's like one of my favorite experiences out of NASA?" And this is top three. I gave a talk once at UC Berkeley with some other colleagues, and it was in front of undergrad and graduate students about NASA programs and things of that nature. And it was probably about eighty to hundred people in the audience. And after the talk, I, a young woman came up to me, and she said. Uh, Hello, Mr. James. My name is Monica Sanchez, and I know you don't remember me, but you came to my seventh grade class and you talked about NASA, and I was so inspired. I decided I want to be an engineer. And she was in graduate school getting two engineering advanced degrees. And Yuval, I want to tell you, on the spot right there, I was fighting the tears. There is no greater pleasure in knowing that you had a role in inspiring somebody to fulfill their dreams. And when you know and you have that direct experience, it makes every challenge, every roadblock, every problem, every issue you've ever had just dissipate because it's like the golfer who hits the perfect shot. They will miss a million shots, go in the water, and be mad, 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 but that one perfect hit is what will keep them coming back for more. And so um, that was one for me. So that's that's what I – and I'm proud of – I have interns, interns that are now doing, you know, phenomenally well in life. Um, and that really is gratifying, um, knowing that I had a role in their career. I hear you, brother. No amount of money and no amount of accomplishment comes close to seeing a client successful or seeing somebody you've helped rise, you know, through the ranks and and become successful. It's amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so in your years of NASA, I'm sure you met a few very interesting, prominent people. And any uh, come to mind and and any cool stories? Yeah, I'll tell you one. I'm not sure I've told this, but I like you. So I'm going to tell you this (laughs) So uh, I've met a lot of astronauts, and I'll admit I'm not much of a starstruck person. I mean, the, the astronauts are great. I mean, as the saying goes, many of my best friends are astronauts. <laughs> you know, they're most of them are a little different than you and I are. They're 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 not normal. They're they're definitely you know off the charts in many ways. But I did get to meet some of the old Apollo astronauts. I'm old enough to have met the old Apollo astronauts. And one of them I've met on a couple of occasions is Buzz Aldrin, who's yep. still around. And um, 
I got a call once. This is when I was in charge of all of NASA education in Washington, D.C. And I got a call once from one of my education directors at one of our field centers who was very upset. And she said that uh, Buzz Aldrin was in town and was giving a talk to a group of students. And apparently Buzz had hit the bar before he gave his talk. It was obvious. And she was terrified because he was going at it and the kids were making fun and laughing and she didn't know what to do and should she what should she do and you know that's one of those things where for almost anybody else you all I probably would have said well the students come first and you know we can't have an incident and you know try to redirect the individual off the stage but Buzz Aldrin is the second man to walk on the moon and like I'll be damned if I'm going to get a call from the president saying how dare you cut off Buzz Aldrin so I said let him go and I'll tell the administrator so I ran up to the administrator and I was like uh sir I just want to share something in case it kind of comes back to you you know and he kind of laughed and said, yep, that's Buzz. And so we never heard anything of it before. And 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 I don't – look, I have an amazing amount – I mean, to say that I have respect for him is, is – it sounds trite. But the point of the story, I think, is that, you know, even astronauts are humans. I, I've been with astronauts who've cried over things that, you know, you wouldn't think they would cry over. And, and so they're human beings. They're not robots. They're not perfect. They're not infallible. Um, we've heard the famous story of the female astronaut who was jealous of the girlfriend of her former boyfriend who drove to Florida to do her harm and wore the astronaut diapers so she didn't have to. I mean, that's a little far out there, you know, but. Yes, you can be crazy and be an astronaut, too. We, we hopefully try to keep the crazies from making the cut, but sometimes we don't do it right. But that, you know, that's one of them. But I've had the pleasure and the privilege of meeting some really incredible people, you know, Nikki Giovanni to Walter Cronkite to, um, to the son of um, – Maya Angelou's son came to see us once because we had flown some things on the Orion test flight that belonged to Dr. Angelo. And so I just felt so lucky. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, it was really lucky. What an incredible, incredible life. And it's funny, I have a buzz question later on. Won't okay. say it now, but I do have a question. So I'm really curious. Let's go to Mama. I'm really curious to get schooled by Mama. And again, you wrote a book dedicated to the lessons that you learned from your mom. And the name of the book is Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't. So how did the book come about and why did you decide to write the book? Two months after I retired, I was asked to come back to NASA to talk to our summer cohort of NASA interns. These are interns that I probably had a role in agreeing to come on board at some level, but I had retired in April and that summer they had a group come out to the center and the chief scientist asked me to come and speak to them about my life and career. And I did. And at the end of the talk, this young man raised his hand and said, if you could go back in time to when you're our age, knowing what you know now, what would you advise your young self? And I told him that was a great, I thought that was a great question. And I, and I thought about it for a minute and I said, well, I think I'd tell young Donald three things. I said, the first thing I would tell him is say yes more. Mm -hmm. Say yes more. There are many opportunities that came my way that I was either scared or didn't have the courage to say yes or thought too much about what it may mean or not mean. And, and I, I said no. In hindsight, I wish I had said yes more. The second thing I said is I would definitely tell young Donald to be very mindful of his mother's admonition that manners will take you where brains and money won't. Because what I learned at NASA is being smart isn't good enough. Being smart is just what gets you in the door. Manners is what's going to take you up the stairs to wherever you end up going. I needed to pay attention to that. Now, having good judgment is also critical, but sometimes poor manners equates to poor judgment. 
And then I said, and the third thing I would tell young Donald is, you got to remember, this young Donald came of age back in the early 80s, right? <laughs> I said, uh, you're going to come across some names of companies called Facebook and Apple and Amazon. You should buy a lot of stock in those, even if you don't have any money. They got a big <laughs> kick out of that. So that's what I told him. And then later, uh, as it turned out, my mother unexpectedly died in August of 2017. Mm. Uh, she just went to sleep and didn't wake up, which, by the way, she said she wanted to do. She said, I just want to go to bed and not wake up. So she actually managed her own passing. And I started thinking about my mom and, you know, how much she meant to me and my brother and the things that she taught us. And then I thought back on that young man's question. And I felt that when I was thinking about my purpose as a retiree, which I concluded was to give, that's my purpose, is to give, that I still wanted to give to young people, to students and early career professionals. And so what I wanted to give them was a piece of my mom and what mm -hmm. I learned at NASA and write the longer answer to that young man's question. And that became the book. Wow. And so the book title, it's a bold statement. Did it just come out when you were speaking? That's what she told us. That's what she told us. I remember her saying that. She said, there are smart people who are incarcerated. There are rich people who are depressed. So clearly being smart and being rich is not necessarily it. Now, I'm not against being smart. Try it. Be, be smart as you want. I'm not against being rich. I have no problem. I actually... And critical of people who are just knee-jerk critical against quote-unquote so-called billionaires, like that's like that's bad. You know, I, I don't have an issue with that. The issue is the assumption that if you just want to pursue intellectual supremacy and financial supremacy, that by definition that's going to be it. And I argue that that's not necessarily the case. Why do I believe this? Because when I was at NASA, I saw very smart people who ended up flailing out, who ended up, I know a man who got fired. Well, he was smart. Why did he get fired? He had bad manners. Now, the NASA people that fired him didn't write that in, you know, because of your bad manners. That's not what they said. You know, usually it's insubordination or something that's technical and legal and all that stuff. But you can trace the foundational root cause to the issue, to what I say is bad manners. Because, see, I define manners very broadly. I argue that it's more than just politeness and etiquette and courtesies and genteelness and all that stuff. That's important. And I think people ought to be mindful of that. Manner is the total package. How you show up, your voice, your body language, your words that you use, the karma, the energy, the everything you bring to the connection is your manner. And your manners with the S are the all the attributes and behaviors that reveal your manner. And there are people who didn't learn how to do that very well, and that cost them their job. Another quick NASA story. I had a, a NASA engineer, a very smart young man, as part of his leadership training, was asked to, to lead an international uh, program that NASA was a part of. And I'm being careful because I, I, I don't be, I don't out anybody, you know, this is this is my my story. But this is true. And it turned out that the feedback we got is he was very arrogant, he didn't listen, and the people were very not happy, and he was managing an international cohort of people. And so that's even more delicate, right? Because you, you know, it's one thing to be in your your, your American-centric culture and kind of have a sense about how you can deal with people. Well, when you're dealing with people from other cultures, you have to even be a little bit more sensitive. And it wasn't happening. And so um, I was asked to go overseas to where he was uh, for a couple of reasons, but one was to try to dig in to find out what was going on. And I interviewed a lot of people around him. And, you know, I heard, you know, he's not listening. He's just, he thinks he's right all the time. And, and this went on and on. And I talked to the guy and I said to him, I said, I said, you know, the, the feedback that I'm getting is that, you know, you're being very righteous about a lot of things. And, and, and let me, and I said, let me ask you this question. I said, 
would you rather be right or would you rather be successful? And he said to my shock, oh, I'm, I know I'm right. I mean, this is just the way it is. I mean, I and, and I said, look, you may actually be right, but I have a feeling you're not being very successful. And my evidence is I just look behind your leadership and look at your followers and see how they're reacting. He didn't last very long. In fact, he was dismissed from that assignment. That's a case where his manners didn't take him where he wanted to go because he thought his intellect and his know-it-all-ness was sufficient. And that if people just understood and got with the program, you know, then, you know, he would show that that's the way to be. And I'm here to say, particularly to young people and early career people, you got to watch out for that. You got to watch out for that. I had an aha moment right now. So thank you. You know the saying, it's who you know, not what you know. Mm -hmm. But it goes a step further because I believe that. But it's also how you show up for the people who you know. Yes. That will get you. Yes. To your destination. Chapter four, you just went into my head and pulled it out of me. It's it's called, am I being interviewed? And the thing that I say to folks is, be careful of the interview you didn't know you were having. Yep. And you're always having an interview. You're always interviewing. Even to it's yourself. Not just, even to yourself. Exactly. You're not just not just in the room when you're trying to apply for a job or approach mm-hmm. whatever it is. People are watching you. Yes. And I said, I said, do you know that most interviews are over before they start? True. Really? Yes. Sometimes you get in an interview, they already made up their mind that they want you or not, or maybe, or they got somebody else in mind. They're just going through the formalities. I mean, I'm guilty of it, too. I've been on the other side of that. And I know damn well when somebody came into the interview, I wasn't going to hire her. You know, people say. And why is that the case? I'm, I apologize for interrupting. Yeah. But the case is, is because I've already interviewed her, even though it wasn't formal. That's the point. So I, I like how you said that. It's how you show up to the people that you know. That is so critical, man. You know, on. you know, the thing is, we all want to pretend that humans shouldn't judge. We all judge. We do. We all judge. And you know what? <laughs> if you're going to come in looking a certain way, we're going to judge you. That's right. You know, everything from, you know, and, and I hate to say this, but everything from what you wear and, and how you present yourself I mean, that's just the case. You look at a sky, you're like, it's blue. That's a judgment. Yeah. We all judge. Yeah. It's in our nature. So show up in the way that you would want to be seen. I think that's the goal. So mom's cardinal rules. How did you incorporate those lessons in your career? When Dennis and I, Dennis is my brother, co-author, uh, when we had to clean out mom's house after she died, we found a box that we hadn't seen before, and, and mom was always good about showing us all the papers and everything. In fact, it became almost like a joke. Every time we'd visit our mom, she'd pull out her finance box and said, now here's where the bank account information is. And so she was she was preparing for this day. But this particular box, we, it wasn't a shock, but we don't remember seeing it. And inside the box had a lot of sayings and aphorisms and on the top, what is said, Muriel's Eight Cardinal Rules of Life. And I said, Dennis, have you ever seen this before? I mean, I remember hearing some of these things, but I'd never seen it written down. So I kept those. In fact, at her memorial service, I printed out them and had them on the table. And, and boy, people were collecting them and trading them like, tra- I want mama's rule number two. You got number four? You have another number five? I know somebody that needs that. And so it became like this, like this fun thing. And so when I started thinking about the book, I knew I wanted to use the rules to incorporate into the book. Um, And so that's where they came from. I found them. And how did you incorporate them into, like, give me some examples of how you incorporated some through your time at NASA? Well, let's take an example of, um, you know, one of the favorite ones is not knowing people's history or story. I, I don't have them in front of me, so forgive me for not quote. I should have them memorized, but it has something to do with, you don't know their history or their past. You don't know what their story is. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many times that has helped me avoid a potentially embarrassing thing because somebody may show up to me. Let's say that they're 
caustic or there's something about their mood or their manner that just rubs me the wrong way. Um, you know, I, I don't know, whatever it is. And, and I, and then I react to that, you know, and I'm not, I'm judgmental about their judgment or whatever it is. And we get into this sort of ego spiral that's usually spirals downward. And so then, you know, later on, I find out through a colleague, you know, that kid died and, you know, their husband left them and, you know, she didn't have any money and has had to scrape and crawl her way back. And there's something about knowing a person's history like that that puts things in different perspective. So the reason that that's helpful is that if you can proactively assume that there's probably more to a story of a, a person's story than you know, mm-hmm. notwithstanding that, you know, trying to withhold judgment anyway is probably a good skill to have, then it really keeps you from stepping into something that you're going to really regret later. The other one that helps, and particularly when you become a senior leader, because you know in leadership, the higher you go, the lonelier it is, right? You're it. When I got to my last job, it wasn't like they gave me a NASA manual and says, here's how you be an associate administrator for education. You know, I walked in and says, oh, what, what, are, my, what are my requirements? And they're like, go do good, <laughs> you know, for the country. <laughs> That's your job, right? You know, okay. <laughs> so, so it's kind of lonely up there. So you cannot, the, the rule about, what other people think of you is none of your business really helps because if you're obsessed with, well, God, I wonder what, I wonder what the boss thinks of me. I wonder what the chief scientist thinks of you're, you're, you're going to kill yourself. You have to let it go. The fact is it really isn't any of your business. It's their business, what they think about you, but your business is what you think about yourself and what your commitment is to your work. So it took me a long time to really absorb that because I'm a very sensitive person. I get sensitive about what people think. I try to, you know, be the peacemaker and all of that stuff. And I learned that when I was at a certain level, that if I got absorbed in my concern for what people are thinking, I could not do my job effectively. But sometimes when, when what people are thinking is revealed to you, I'm here to tell you it hurts. And I've had that. And yet that comes with the territory. So it's helped me in many ways. The last rule, which is don't cry because it's over, smile because it's happened. I I literally said that out loud on my last day of work, March 31st, 2017. I remembered that rule. And I smiled and I said, that was a great ride. Yeah, it's part of the journey. And we all we all look to that destination, but there is no destination. It's just a beginning of another part of your journey. Yeah, yeah, it keeps you alive, right? You know, learning new things and next chapter. You know, so yeah, Ab- absolutely. So you mentioned you briefly touched upon this, but let's get a, an actual definition. So, what does manners mean to you? Manners is the total way in which you show up in the world to other people. And it's governed by behaviors, which includes physical behaviors, verbal behaviors, both the words and the voice, the tone. It's the energy of where you're coming from in the moment. Uh, let me give you an example of what that means, because it's what I mean is I'm sure you've been in the presence of somebody where no words have been exchanged, but you said, man, that person seems like an angry cat, right? Like, I don't know what his trip is, but he's like angry about something. Well, there's probably a lot of little micro cues. There's a lot of research that's been done on micro movements in the body, which which reveal things about you. Sometimes you can guess wrong. Uh, Joe Navarro, who's a famous FBI body language expert, talks about this in his book, that you got to be careful about what you conclude because... Sometimes you got to triangulate your information, but sometimes you can just sense it about people. And I developed that. In fact, that's pro tip number one for anybody learning how to to be successful in an organization is really sharpen your intuitive skills about people. I can walk into a meeting and I can tell within a nanosecond whether it's going to be a good day or not, whether people got issues, whether there's something going on. Because if you're if you're clueless about that, you're going to have a have a problem. So manner is about 
all of that. It's it's not just writing handwritten thank you notes because you're gifted. I mean, I do that, but you can also write a handwritten thank you note that doesn't land well because it was robotic. It was it was just a box you have to check, and and the reader can sense that. Like you know, and I get this a lot from high school students who graduate from high school and we send them a gift. And then I get a note that looks like it was dictated by their parents or it wasn't, I I didn't feel any love in the note or anything personal. And I I get it. They probably got to write a hundred of these things and they probably didn't want to do it in the first place. Right. It's not just the act of things. It's kind of where you're coming from. So it's really the totality of all of that. And um, I I've never felt comfortable that I had the best soundbite or the best definition, but it's very inclusive. I'll tell you, it also includes things that you don't really have a lot of control over in in terms of who you are, but who you are will dictate your actions and reactions. Example, if you're the only woman that walks into a board meeting and you are completely clueless about that fact, that could be a problem because somewhere in that board meeting, there's going to be some guy that's going to say something stupid or sexist, and it's going to catch you off guard, and you're going to react in a certain way, and then you're going to get a reaction to the reaction like, you know, oh, she must be sensitive. I know that as a black man, when I walk into any experience, I am not unaware of the fact that I'm an African-American person because I know that people often will see me as black first before they see me as Donald Gregory James who is six foot four and, you know, loves football and, you know, sensitive and cries sometimes and whatever it is. They don't know all of that, but they do know that I'm black, right? And I know that sometimes, because this happened to me in my experience, and I will tell young black men this, you will have this experience, that people will say something, they may mean well, but it's going to land differently. I had a young woman in an interview for an internship once, she I write this in the book, and she somewhere during the interview, you know, she she said, uh, well, you know, my boyfriend is black, and you know, we just she had to mention that her boyfriend was black, and and I'm looking at her like I don't care. <laughs> I mean, what does that have to do with whether or not you're going to be good in this job or not? I mean, it doesn't it's not relevant. But I know what she was doing. She was trying to figure out. Where can I find common ground with this interviewer and what I see is a black man? So if I tell him that my boyfriend's black, maybe he'll think that I'm good with black people. So therefore, things are great. The problem is that usually is a big failure. Yeah. You know, it's okay to establish rapport and common ground, uh, but doing it on race. It's like me saying, you know, oh, my best friends have, you know, gray beard, Duval. And, you know, you're like, so what? (laughs) So what? Anyway, so as manners is a hard one to define. I try it in the book and I, I just, it, it's a lot of introspection. It's, it's asking people in your networks to support you in that area, to look at that manner. Like when people would tell me, Donald, did you know in that meeting that you cut off that woman three times, even though you had something to say, you didn't let her finish. And I noticed you didn't really do that with some of the other guys. No, I didn't know that. Wow. I was completely clueless that I did that. That was the manner that, that, that somebody was showing me what, how, how my manners were in a way that I can then correct, self-correct, because that's not my intention. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's effect. Absolutely. And everything you said is spot on. So your mom is looking down at you now. Do you feel that you honored her with the book? I do. I do. And it's an ongoing process. And um, I think about her all the time. I go visit her at her gravesite, you know, and I tell her what's happening. She struggled a lot and it was challenging for her um, in many ways. And yet when I came along, which was three months after her first son died, she was just committed to having healthy babies and, you know, rearing us in a way that, you know, we could be successful. Wow. So she went through some real tragedy. Yeah, she did. And that wasn't the only one. Um, you know, my father turned out to be a rolling stone. And um, I found out later in life, I've got several half siblings, three of whom I've never really met, you know, just finding out about thanks to the wizardry of 23 and me and ancestry 
but she kept that to herself. She didn't have pity parties. You know, she didn't talk about her illnesses and surgeries. She didn't talk about uh, my older brother who died unless I asked her and she would talk if she had to. She never really badmouthed my dad, not until later in life to kind of seep out, but she never did that. And so I think she did all of that for our benefit. And so to that, I owe her, you know, more than life itself. And I do my best to try to emulate that. Like my grandma, she protected others and harmed herself in the process, in a sense, yeah. by not being able to yeah. express her true feelings. Yeah. And actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I think most therapists and psychologists would say that to to keep a lot of that in without proper grieving with a loss or being expressive and authentic by covering a lot of that up um, can 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 be hurtful, can be difficult. But I'm not an expert in that field. I just believe that it's true. But I do see it as what she thought was necessary to sacrifice for our benefit. Wow. All right. Well, time is flying by. I really want to get to some lessons learned from NASA. Yeah. So let's yeah. switch gears. You know, entrepreneurs must accomplish incredible feats to change the world. And uh, therefore, they're really natural risk takers. Think of Elon Musk, for example. On the other hand, you have NASA, where the engineers are notoriously focused on safety, safety, safety. And on yet another hand, the task of venturing into space in the first place and then coming back in one piece is fundamentally risky at its core. So how does an organization like NASA balance risk and safety and what lessons can we draw from that that can apply to entrepreneurs? Well, for one thing, NASA has a big safety culture that grew out of uh, the earlier accidents. Challenger wasn't the first one. We had the Apollo 1 fire that killed three of the Apollo astronauts. And even before that, you know, Robert Lawrence, who was the first black astronaut, died on a training mission. So there is, you know, so every time there's this big catastrophe, you know, NASA, like other government agencies, try to solve the last problem. And so there's a there's a whole rigorous set of standards involved with how do you do safety things. Uh, there's a whole set of engineering requirements. Uh, it's I mean, we, we know it by the, the number. It's sort of like 401k, but it's 7120. That's the NASA engineering, you know, handbook. And then there's all these different letters that, you know, come after it to show the evolution of it. And so they're, they're, they try to be prescriptive about this. The, the challenge is that you can go too far and, and everything is different and there's a lot of new things that happen and the culture evolves. And so there is a benefit to having a lot of the older NASA people, we call them the gray beards, working with the younger engineers to talk about, you know, what their experience was so that you don't get too trapped in doing rocket by connecting the dots, you know, and all that. I mean, if, if rocketry was easy, then none of the rockets you'd ever see launch would would never explode. And, you know, they explode all the time. You know, there was one recently that went off course. And, you know, since we know so much about it, how is it that that can continue to happen? Well, it's just a very unforgiving field. Even Richard Branson's flight, it comes to turn out, wasn't on course. And, and you know, Elon blows up rockets all the time on his quest to develop, you know, the right thing, which, by the way, in, in the NASA world, we wouldn't have tolerated that because as a public institution, the feeling is that the public wouldn't appreciate, you know, blowing up a lot of its taxpayer dollars, money all the time. Whereas if it's Elon's money, nobody cares. So that's that's one of the big differences. But I'm I am personally a big fan of a lot of the space commercialization effort. And NASA was responsible for helping instigate that. The heat shield on Elon's uh, Dragon capsule was developed at NASA, in fact, at the center where I worked. And so we transfer a lot of that technology. Um, but I think it's like the airline industry, which really began as government investment into military transport and post office transport. And then that beget the commercial airline industry that we know today. And I think that that'll happen in the space world uh, as well. With the following caveat, I and I, I'm not I'm not pessimistic or a doomsayer, but people are going to die on commercial space rockets. Ordinary people who paid their two hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is, and it'll be interesting to see if the country has a stomach for tolerating that kind of risk. Maybe because we 
tolerate the COVID deaths that would happen. And, you know, I don't want anybody to die, but I, I, I complex machinery, particularly in space, there's bound to be issues and problems. And so when that happens, and I think it will happen, you know, how are we going to respond? Is the government going to want to really regulate it to keep it, you know, to regulate out all risk? You know, well, that's just not possible. I mean, we tried it with cars, and I think a lot of good regulations happen for the automobile industry, but people still die in car accidents. So, you know, that's just what's going to happen in space. But, you know, it's a different, you know, NASA is supposed to do the real risky far out things that no entrepreneur would want to waste his money on, but yet, you know, eventually we'll have great returns, but you know, there's a price you pay for that. It's slow. We don't always get it right. James Webb has been delayed for so long. I can't even remember how long it's been delayed, but eventually, you know, it's going to transform astronomy. But, you know, that same was true for Hubble. Hubble was late and Hubble had a problem, but Hubble continues to transform astronomy. So it's just a whole different can of worms. But there are certain things that I think are foundational. And I want to go back to what I mentioned earlier, because like I said, when I had a chance to you know, become a senior leader, I was given an opportunity to leave NASA and go do whatever I wanted to do as part of my training. And I chose to work in a startup company. Here's what happened. It was fascinating. We had to go to Sand Hill Road, which is where all the money is for venture capitalists out here in the peninsula. And this company was pitching to get, you know, next round of funding. And I knew a little bit about this, but I'm I'm like, you know, what's around? You know, what's <laughs> VC stands for what again? You know, so I said, well, come along and you'll 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 see how things were done. And so we go to this room, it's real fancy and it's real plush and everything. And I'm sitting next to the CEO, and the CEO is sitting next to the two, I guess the rich guys who are looking at his pitch. And then we had the CFO and the marketing VP for marketing on the other side of the table. All right. That's how the seating arrangement was. And the CEO was doing this briefing. Well, the first thing, the CEO who you think I get excited about now. So this guy was twice excited about what he was doing. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, you're not excited about what you're doing. You're probably in the wrong business, right? So he was just so excited. He's talking really fast. And he, I swear his deck was like, you know, 70 pages. And I'm thinking, that's kind of long, but you know, you know, Joe kind of talks fast. Maybe we'll get through it. Well, I'm watching him do this presentation, and I notice two things. Out of my peripheral vision, I can see the VCs looking at this who wanted to ask a question or to check on something, but Joe was so excited and talking so fast, he wasn't watching that, and he didn't stop to check in. And I thought, hmm, I don't know about that. The second thing I noticed is that the VP of marketing on the other side is sitting in these chairs, which, of course, can swivel, and he's swiveling the whole time. And finally, I'm looking at him, and I'm trying to, like, stop swiveling, you know, because I could see that they kept – I was looking over them at the VCs, and they were looking at him. So finally, when the briefing was over, I asked my friend who, who got me in the company, I said, uh, can we have an after-action discussion on this? Sure. You know, DJ, what do you think? And so I told him, I said, uh, permission to speak candidly. He said, sure, go right ahead, Don. What's on your mind? I said, Joe, my man, you talk way too fast. They wanted to ask you questions. You didn't give them a chance. And for God's sake, 70 charts? Are you kidding? I had no idea you had 70 charts. And I looked at the other guy and I said, Mark, dude, you were swiveling in your chair. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were the whole time. I said, you can't do that. So I gave him that feedback and I gave him some other feedback and we reconfigured the presentation. I kid you not, the next time it went a lot better and they got $7 million. Now, I'm not claiming that I caused them to get $7 million. What I am saying is those little things matter. The manner in which we presented, the manner in which our team showed up, the manner in which the CEO showed up, the manner in which the VP of marketing sat at his chair mattered. Now, whether that was the reason we didn't get funding from that group or not, because we didn't get funding from them, right? I have no idea, but I suspect it was annoying. You can't be annoying. <laughs> so that is the same dynamics that happen in NASA briefings. 
I've seen NASA briefings where senior people got so fed up with the presenter, they cut them off and say, stop talking. This is not working for me. I mean, I've, I've seen it happen. And so you can be smart and you can know what you're talking about. But you have to understand the dynamics of how you're doing what you're doing. That's what's common between these spaces. It doesn't matter if you're an entrepreneur and a nonprofit or whatever it is. And I work for nonprofits now. And the same kinds of things happen. I beg, you know, my friend who runs a nonprofit, please, you got to make your deck a little bit smaller. You got to slow your cadence in your presentation. You know, people want to engage, you know, you got to read the room. You got to read the room. We're so unaware of how we behave. And I think there might be a new career for you just walking into, into meetings with, with uh, founding teams and, and telling them what they're doing wrong. <laughs> you know, just giving them observations and letting them decide, you know, because we often don't see ourselves. You know what it's like? Look, all right. So this is my kids say, Dad, this is TMI. All right. So this is TMI. It's like every day you get out of the shower and you look at yourself in the mirror and you don't think anything of it and you go about your business. Then heaven help you if you see a photograph of yourself in a bathing suit and you freak out like, oh, my God, I look so fat. I look oh my hair is thinning. And that's what I'm talking about. You see, you don't see yourself. That's why you got to have a have a team that you've invited to be to be authentically clear with you about their observations from a loving perspective so that they can say, did you know you cut off that person in that meeting? I did. You know, did you know you were swiveling in the chair? I was. They don't, you don't see that, right? So it's it's the same thing as seeing the picture of yourself in your skivvies. Yeah. You're going to notice things you didn't notice before, especially from behind. <laughs> well, that that's the beauty of my co-founder and I. We're we're always truly honest. I, there was a, a meeting recently, and and poor guy just hasn't slept for for a week. Just been so uh-huh. busy. And uh-huh. in the meeting, I start seeing him doze off. So I'm speaking, and I'm we're on Zoom, and all of a sudden his head just drops, Uh-oh. and he's sleeping in the middle of the meeting. And oh, I'm like, and at the no. end, of the, and at the end of the meeting, I'm like, Chris, you know, you just fell asleep. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's like it's just being honest, and and it's all about trust, right? With with the people it that is. you work with. You know, it's really interesting. I was thinking about this, and here's the bus question. I've heard over the years that astronauts have a high tendency of um, experiencing addiction and depression. And Buzz Aldrin famously provided some insight when he said uh, after his mission on the moon, he said there was no goal no sense of calling, no project worth pouring myself into. I wonder if this is a condition of goal setting and trying to reach some sort of destination to find a sense of fulfillment uh, in the achievement itself. I mean, what kind of goals can you set for yourself after landing on the moon, right? What's what's your take on this phenomenon with working with astronauts? Do you think that they're just so set on their goals that once they reach these periodaceous goals that there's no purpose and that's the resulting fact? My sense is that you need to rethink how you define your purpose, right? If my purpose is to give, which is what it is, there's no end to that. And by the way, I want to be clear to the listeners. When I talk about giving, it includes myself. Yeah, I give to myself. I give to my health. I give to my my spiritual needs, the whole nine yards. So it's not just going outward. But I feel like you have to question you know, R- Rona Ramon, who's the widow of Elon Ramon. Elon Ramon was one of the astronauts on Space Shuttle Columbia. He he was the first Israeli astronaut, the second of which, by the way, is going up at the end of the year. But she and I had the privilege of knowing Rona personally, not not a lot, but, you know, we talked on the phone. And, and she always talked about not necessarily why you do something, but for what, as if to say, you know, what's the what's the bigger goal? You know, so as I see it, what I'd like to think that all of us are about ultimately at the end of the day is to advance the human condition. Is that ever over? I mean, what about the planet? Well, if we don't take care of our planet, our human condition is going to suffer, which we see it happening now. 
And you can go down the list of things that anybody could be interested in from new knowledge, from exploration to homelessness or whatever it is. In some way, it's all about advancing our human condition. Otherwise, if we didn't care about that, why don't we just destroy ourselves now? What's the point, right? So I would just wonder whether or not somebody who attains something and then is sort of lost feels that way. I Just before I retired, a friend of mine took me to lunch and said, he heard that you need three things for a successful retirement. I said, yeah, what's that? He said, you need purpose, structure, and a social life. Mm. And I took that to heart, and I think he was spot on. It turns out that when I'm no longer in a structured environment, I really needed to work on my structure. Fortunately, my wife is manages events for a profession, so I don't have to worry about my social life. She's got that handled. I just outsource that to her. And purpose, I had to work on a little bit. What I had, Duvall, was things I wanted to do, right? I wanted to clear my garage out. I wanted to work on the backyard. I wanted to do, I had these goals, right? You know, I wanted to go on the, to the moon, you know. <laughs> but the point is, for what? For what do you do? I do all these things. Is my life really going to be a series of objectives that I just met? So I had to really rethink about what 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 makes my heart sing. What makes my what makes me happy? You know, and I go back to Monica Sanchez, who was inspired by the fact that I showed up at her classroom and talked NASA stuff, and I said, "That's what makes my heart sing." So I wanted to devote to giving, particularly to young people. That's why I talk to schools and give talks. And and that's why I wrote the book. And, you know, any kid that calls me up and says, hey, can I talk to you about something? The answer is yes, before they finish the question. So that's what I, you know, until we run out of young people, that's what I want to do, you know, because uh, that's how I learn. That's how I grow. I don't have a, look, let me be clear. I don't know everything. I'm, I'm a work in progress and I'm still learning, particularly from my own kids who teach me every day about things that, oh, dad, that is so not cool. Do not do that. <laughs> No, you will not be on TikTok. <laughs> so, um, so I, I would just, you know, look at that. I mean, I, one of my predecessor at NASA is a fascinating guy, Leland Melvin. He's the only NASA astronaut, the only astronaut in the world who was a former professional football player. There, there hasn't been any others. And he got hurt playing professional football and decided, well, I got to do something else. And he said, well, I always liked engineering, became an engineer. Worked for NASA, applied to be an astronaut, got to be an astronaut and flew twice on space shuttle. And now he retired, thankfully, because I got his job. And he just runs, he runs, inspires students. He continues to do that. You know, he became the head of NASA education after an astronaut. And so that's what he does. And, you know, he's charming. He's good looking. He's charismatic. And so he can inspire a lot of people. So that's his, that's his purpose is to do that. And his dogs, he loves his dogs. I just interviewed Sean Wells and the episode dropped today. He's incredible. I have to say that speaking of giving, because you mentioned giving and you mentioned purpose and doing things that light you up. It's not just about getting goals accomplished. It's getting goals accomplished that light you up, that you can say hell yes to, right? But even more importantly, when you said give back to yourself, this is a direct quote that he mentioned in, his, in, in the podcast. He said, I didn't realize that your cup needs to be overflowing and that the people around you get the overflow from your cup instead of taking from your cup. And that's where self-care is so important. And I, I never thought that. of that. I never thought I of that. that. So that's that's really, really awesome. So, I mean, I can speak with you for, for days. I, one last NASA question. What was your greatest failure and what did you learn from that experience? I never failed. Love that. Go on. And the truth is, I haven't failed. What is true is I have often produced a result that I didn't want or didn't intend. That happens a lot. For me, I just don't like the term. Failure is an emotional term for me that I have a hard time disassociating with me personally. So I just declare that I don't fail. What I declare is I have intentions and I get results, and many times the results I get aren't what I intended. That's what actually happened. Yep. And that's actually what really happened. I asked Susie to go to the seventh grade dance, and she laughed and said, no, I didn't fail. I just didn't get the result that I wanted. She didn't go with me. End of story. So I don't mean to be funny about this, 
But I often invite people to look at languaging that they use and suggest changing our languaging that works better for me. And failure as a term doesn't work for me. I just produce a result that didn't happen. And I say, well, that, and I, and I, I use this quote. It's from the remake of True Grit. Jeff Bridges is in there. He plays Rooster Cogburn and, there's this big gunfight, right? You know, he's having and everything, and, and 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 all his guys get killed and doesn't work out. And he looks around and he goes, Well, that didn't pan out. And I just love that phrase. It's like, it didn't pan out. You know, she said no. You know, I didn't get the promotion. I didn't get, you know, the raise I asked for. You didn't fail. You just didn't get the result you wanted. Yeah. So it- so I just I don't fail. Yeah. And I think that's that's interesting because I always look at outcomes as neutral. It's the definition that you put on it that makes it so. And failure. Result. Absolutely. Yeah. And and failure. Now, some, now, sorry, I say some results really aren't great, right? You know, it's it's not it's not that they necessarily carry the same weight, right? Yeah. I, I have a dear friend that I, I I love who got a test result about her cancer that wasn't good. That's not the same thing as Susie saying no to me for the seventh grade dance. I want to be crystal clear about that. But I don't attach emotional weight to the results that I produce just from a work standpoint to the point where, you know, I label it, you know, failure just because it it doesn't work for me. Fun fact, This I'm just going to throw this in because being a failure, a lot of people heard of the famous phrase that NASA failure is not an option. They know it's attributed to Eugene Krantz, who was the flight director during Apollo 13. Fun fact, he did not actually say that. That actually was a phrase that was invented by a journalist when the journalist asked Eugene if that's kind of what he meant when he was dancing around about, you know, his intention to save the spaceship. And he goes, yeah, I kind of like that. And I know that for a fact because he told me personally, and I have his book that he actually autographed, and his book is called Failure is Not an Option. And I said, how did you come up with that? And he goes, well, I didn't. That was a journalist. So fun fact, nobody ever knew this. Eugene Krantz never uttered those words. You're never going to find it. I love that. It's a great, I mean, these are all great lessons that entrepreneurs can take away, especially labeling uh, emotions, right? Labeling outcomes as an emotion. That's really poignant for, for a lot of listeners. So I'd like to close on my interviews with the following question. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest all this success in your life? I love that question. I had to stop being the character in my head that I thought I was. And I had to become Donald James as evidenced by my voice and my presence. Love that. I had to, I had to stop being the character. In my book, I talk about the committee that's in our head. And I had a very active committee. And it had this vision, you know, this is who you are. And I had to let that go. I had to find my voice. In fact, that's often the counsel I offer to young people as they're growing. I said, you need to find your voice. And when you find your voice, it doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter how they react. It's it's your truth. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be open to reconsideration or looking at it from your team, but it's your voice. When I got there, which was later in my career, and I felt I had come home. Speaking of finding your voice, how could the seven hatters find you? DonaldGregoryJames.com is my website, DonaldGregoryJames.com. And in there, there's a place to, you know, submit a query for just if you want to re- reach out and chat or whatever. I'm also on LinkedIn and Facebook. And, um, and I like emails. People can email me. And it's very easy to remember. It's the first part of the title of the book. Manners will take you at gmail.com. Manners will take you at gmail.com. And the book is sold everywhere? The book is sold everywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, ISBN. And uh, I'll tell you another secret because I really like you. In two (laughs) weeks, I'm going to record an audio version of the book. Um, I got a contract with a company out of Connecticut to 
to to do that. And uh, I auditioned, and they said, "Okay, you can do the you can do the voice work." And so, uh, an audio version of the book will be out hopefully by January. Uh, but right now, it's paperback and an ebook. Well, you're a fascinating, lovely individual. I am honored to have met you and had the chance of conversing with you for a little bit. Thank you again for imparting your wisdom to the seven hatters out there on the seven hats podcast. You're welcome. And I welcome the connection and yes, let's stay connected. This is great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Donald. Let's end today with the segment of the show that I refer to as what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. How you show up matters, and Donald explains. Your body language, the words you use, the karma and energy you put forth is your manner, while manners, with an S, are all the attributes and behaviors that reveal your manner. There is an irrefutable natural law, and that is humans judge. I don't care if you're young or old, a kid from the hood or a monk meditating up on a mountain. We all judge to some extent. And that's why manners matter beyond intellect, societal placement, wealth, or success. And as Donald states, some people don't learn their manners very well, which cost them dearly in life. Their manners don't take them where they want to go. I hope that Donald's journey and wisdom from his mom and his time at NASA inspired you to look within and reflect on your manners and how you show up for the people in your life. I want to thank Donald once again for joining us so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you received from it so that we can attract even more high-quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck, and I tip my hat to you. <laughs>